Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and the Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, academics, innovators, and those doing boots-on-the-ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Hello, and welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. My name is Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. Over the last few years, we have noticed an increase in the number of questions regarding democracy, its institutions, civic responsibilities, and how all of those interact and mesh. And the Jackson Center's program theme this year is Democracy on Trial. We are focused on the challenges to, pressures on, and opportunities for democracy and democratic institutions, both here in the United States and globally. These are not new questions. And Robert H. Jackson wrote and spoke on democracy in his 10 years as U.S. Attorney General, U.S. Supreme Court Justice, and as the Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. During this year, we will be convening conversations about democracy, U.S. and global institutions, voting rights, the U.S. Supreme Court, and much, much more. This year, there will only be one tea time each month on the fourth Thursday. And we hope each of these programs inspire you to have conversations with your family, friends, and colleagues, and to seek out ways to add your voice or make changes in your communities. And for those of you watching this live, remember you can ask your questions at any time in the Facebook chat. Today, I am pleased to have Drs. Caitlin Stauffer and Alex Betis as our guests to talk about the importance of diversity in the judiciary. Dr. Stauffer is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and affiliated faculty member with the Women's and Gender Studies Program at the University of South Carolina. Her research focuses on gender and politics, representation, political institutions, and public opinion. Dr. Betis is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Houston. His research expertise is in the fields of judicial politics, which covers judicial decision-making, public attitudes toward judicial institutions, and representation within the judiciary. Caitlin and Alex, thank you so much for joining me for tea today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. I appreciate the invite. So I like to start each of these conversations with kind of a grounding or level setting question. And the one I came up with for you is we tend to talk a lot about diversity at the Supreme Court level. And that's mm-hmm. not never more so obvious than the last couple of months. And while that's certainly important, though, is that the right place for our focus? Should we be concerned about diversity on the Supreme Court? Should we be concerned about it, more concerned about it, lower? Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and, and go ahead, Alex. Take, I take this first and then Caitlin follow up if she has anything. So I think there's benefits to focusing on the Supreme Court and one is the Supreme Court is the most visible institution within the judiciary. 
So when people are kind of thinking about the judiciary in the U.S. context, they're thinking about the Supreme Court or they're seeing the Supreme Court in media presentations of the judiciary. We most often see the Supreme Court. It's very rare for the Circuit Court of Appeals or the district courts to be discussed in the media. So that's what people are seeing, right? So that's the benefit of focusing on the Supreme Court as an institution. There are downsides to this too, right? The Supreme Court hears about 80 to 90 cases in any given term. So they're really settling very few issues of law relative to the circuit courts and the district courts. So if we're thinking about how diversity impacts judicial decision-making, maybe the better focus is these lower courts that are not the Supreme Court. So it's kind of a strengths and weaknesses to focusing so closely on the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, I would agree with what Alex just said there. I think it really depends on what the question is about why we think diversity matters. If we're thinking about kind of public responses to the judiciary and how Americans feel about their relationship with government, then I think the Supreme Court makes perfect sense because it's visible. People are more likely to know who the justices are rather than individuals serving on the circuit courts. But if we're getting into the realm of actual legal decision-making, things that are going to impact most of us in our day-to-day lives, the circuit courts, the district courts are more likely to have an impact. Is there perhaps the concept that maybe diversity will trickle down? So if you see it more at the, the Supreme Court level, then the natural flow will be downward. Is there any merit to that thinking? I think maybe it's actually a trickle up effect because we see when typically Supreme Court justices are going to have experience on the circuit courts. Some may even have experience on the district courts. So for that diversity to reach the level of the Supreme Court, it first has to be in the lower level institutions so the president can select from them. There's a lot of research studies that show when the president selects uh, individuals with judicial experience, they get somebody who's more aligned with their preferences and more aligned with what their view of the law should be. So presidents have kind of internalized this, and that's why we see so many of the nominees today coming from the lower courts. So before you can have diversity in the Supreme Court, you sort of need diversity in those lower level institutions first. Okay, that makes sense. I have to be candid that the genesis of this conversation really came out of a conversation I was having with some colleagues of could someone with Justice Jackson's background be nominated, or Justice Jackson, Robert H. Jackson, be nominated and confirmed on the court in this day and age. Uh, And, you know, it was really his path while traditional at the time in the 40s, he came up obviously through Mm -hmm. the Department of Justice. And I think at the time, he was the third attorney general in a row to have been appointed to the Supreme Court. That was a pretty typical path back then. But since he did not graduate mm-hmm. from law school and had no judiciary experience other, you know, other than his his time in the in the legislative branch with the DOJ, uh, sorry, not the legislative branch, the executive branch. Excuse me, all the all the political science professors <laughs> out there. That uh, you know, it it seemed unlikely that he his path would would have worked in this day and age. And I know both of you have written on how diversity impacts public perception Mm -hmm. and public opinion of the nominees. So I want to talk to you both about that. Alex, I'm going to start with you on this question. So what role does public opinion play in judicial nominations? Public opinion can kind of provide two pathways for judicial nominations. First is when presidents are selecting judicial nominees in the first place, they may have a strategic eye towards how will this influence my standing, right? They maybe want to score points or kind of gain capital among certain constituencies. So they're going to be considering that when they choose a nominee, right? They're going to choose how is this going to be reflected on me. Two, in a similar vein, the senators also consider the public, right? So there's some research articles that demonstrate 
that senators ultimate vote to, to confirm or not confirm a nominee are shaped by the public uh, preferences of their constituencies. So if we look at state level approval of a nominee and the state tends to support a nominee, that senator's more likely then to confirm that nominee. So it seems like there's some level of responsiveness going on. Then the second avenue for influence is constituencies hold senators accountable for how they vote on these nominees. So a paper I have with Beth Seamus, who's also a professor here at the University of Houston, demonstrates that when senators vote incongruent with individuals' preferences on judicial nominees, they're more likely to vote against them in the next election. And it's a pretty big, strong substantive effect, uh, typically taking on a, a bigger role than just your average issues. So judicial nominations seem to have an important impact on how voters make their choices. Did that seem as if that was what played out with the most recent Jackson nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson, that obviously it was a very close nomination process or approval process? Did that, and I'm asking largely because I'm remembering some polls where it sounded like more of the public was in favor of her nomination than you would have guessed from how the Senate voted. Yeah, so I think a lot of that is kind of going on here, right? I think one Biden makes the promise to nominate the first African-American woman to the Supreme Court, there's some eye towards, you know, the legacy that will bring him. There's some eye towards how this may be mobilized voters in the election, right? Because he makes that promise as a candidate. So he's definitely trying to appeal to these constituencies and hope that motivates them to turn out for him. And then in terms of how the public supported her, yeah, we, we saw that she was pretty supported by the public and even more so than recent nominees so it could be due to her unique identity. Uh, typically, uh, an article Caitlin and I wrote found that people tend to want diversity in the judiciary, right? If you just ask them how important it is that the nominees are reflective of the diversity of the American public, typically people say this is an extremely important or somewhat important characteristic of nominees. So it seems like that kind of helped build her approval a bit. And ultimately, while the confirmation vote was still very polarized, you did actually see a handful of crossover votes that we haven't been seeing the last few nominations. And if I remember off the top of my head correctly, three Republicans crossed the aisle and voted in favor of her, which I think in a context where maybe Biden kind of nominated just your, you know, kind of ordinary white male candidate, maybe those senators would not feel the pressure enough to cross the aisle and vote in, mm -hmm. in that nominee's favor. So it could have helped in that regard too. So Caitlin, I noticed in some of the research that you have been doing, there's, a, I'm not sure I'm going to phrase this exactly right, so bear with me, um, it's sort of an analogous, so if I see someone who looks like me, I have a tendency to feel a kinship there, even if our ideology might be not exactly aligned. And so is is that an accurate statement? Is, is, a, is a shared race or a shared gender or shared ethnicity able to overcome a dissimilar ideology. Yeah, so I think one of the things Alex and I have really been showing in a lot of our research is, I don't know that I would phrase it as it can overcome an ideological distance. Um, so one of the things we found in research that we've done where we looked at several different nominees over time is ideology is still incredibly important. And so if you identify as conservative, you're still not going to love a liberal nominee, but that shared identity plays a little bit of a role and you're, you're more willing to accept an incongruent nominee. So if I'm a conservative, I still would like a conservative nominee, but I'm a little more forgiving to a liberal nominee who shares an identity with me in a way that a comparable man might not be. 
is there, we last year spent a lot of time talking about the intersectionality of, of various justice points. So is there, is there a combination of, of traits or is there, and I'm not necessarily thinking specific traits yeah. to outline, but you know, it's the, the more, the more similarity to me that a nominee has, even if the ideology is different, does that impact anything? Yeah, so that's a great question. So one of the things Alex and I noticed in our research when we were looking at these uh, nominees over time was we looked at the case of Sonia Sotomayor and we looked at, because we have this really salient intersection of race, race and gender there. And what we found there was actually we found big effects for shared ethnicity, but we did not find gender effects there. And so when we looked at white women and kind of their level of approval for Sonia Sotomayor, they behaved very similarly to white men. But so I think you're touching on a really important facet there is that we do need to consider these intersecting identities because clearly white women were not feeling that kinship with Sonia Sotomayor. And so kind of thinking about some of the limits of these identities or the intersections and how that changes the way people think about and accept or reject particular nominees. So, uh, and Alex, you brought this up, President Biden, then candidate Biden, this was part of his campaign platform that he would, if he had the Mm -hmm. opportunity, he would nominate the first African-American woman to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's not the first time that a president has publicly stated or a candidate has publicly stated what their likely path on a Supreme Court nominee would be. I believe President Reagan said he would nominate a woman prior to nominating Justice O'Connor, and I believe... President Clinton did the same thing with Justice Ginsburg's um, before Justice Ginsburg's nomination. But there seemed to be a particular backlash in this instance to to President Biden's announcement of that. Is there something we should take away from that? Is is how the public is conceptualizing these nominees changing? Or is that more of a conservative reaction to a a liberal president? I'm just curious as to what what we can learn from that. So I guess I'll take that first <laughs> guess at this. So I think, you know, part of it is about maybe trying to make the process look unfair to a particular subset of people. Uh, so how we view the judiciary is actually a lot different than how we view the other political institutions. We always want to try to evaluate the judiciary through a lens of procedural fairness. So typically, if people think of the processes as fair, they'll accept an outcome, even if they maybe disagree with it. So I think by kind of having that line of attack that, well, he's made a promise to choose a certain uh, category of nominee, a Black woman, the Republicans are trying to make the process look unfair, and maybe like he's not going through a thoughtful, considerate process that reflects procedural fairness, and maybe that will then damage her overall credibility and maybe harm her chances at confirmation. So I think that's kind of the intent towards it. But when we look at it from the public's perspective, I don't think how the public is viewing these nominees is necessarily changing over time. Uh, Before the meeting today, I was looking again at some some updated polls on how the public view diversity and the importance of diversity in judicial institutions. And it really reflects what Caitlin and I have found kind of since the 1970s when we first started seeing questions of this type asked. In the 1970s, people said, yes, we, we uh, we value diversity in judicial nominations we'd support the president making diverse nominations. And we see that all the way through time and even the most recent polls in the backdrop of the most recent nomination of Judge Shetchen reflect an appetite or desire from the public to see diversity in judicial nominees. So I, I don't think it's a, we're changing how we view these nominees, more of a maybe the Republican strategy to make the process look unfair and maybe mobilize opposition that way. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. And two things I would add is I think in this case as well, I think this became kind of a Republican talking point, given the broader context of um, how the party has approached things like critical race theory and kind of trying to create that as uh, kind of a political boogeyman. And so this was an easy line of attack given some of the paths they've already been going down. One other thing, I will plug some research by a colleague here who did some experimental work where essentially they talked to people about, you know, President Biden made this campaign promise and then reminded them that Ronald Reagan did the same thing. And by reminding people that this was not a new thing for a president to make this type of promise and reminding them that Republicans have made these types of promises really kind of lowered the backlash that Republicans faced. We've talked a little bit and we just sort of started tickling around the edges of this, the process and how the public is, well, at least politicians think the public is interested in the process (laughs) seeming neutral. When we're talking about that neutrality, what do we what do we mean by that? Is that ideology ideologically neutral? Is that more that the process to get someone from point A to point B is open, transparent, and seems fair? Uh, Alex, I think maybe I'll start with you on that one. Yeah, so it's really kind of the, the second half of what you mentioned is ensuring that there's a fair process that's that's going on. So making sure everyone has an equal say and an equal ability to contribute to an outcome. There's research that shows that most people do acknowledge to an extent that the justices on the Supreme Court are motivated by ideology or politics, but as long as they don't think that's the primary force behind their decision-making or that's all they care about, they're sort of willing to accept it. So I think we all kind of know that judges can't be robots, right? So we're gonna say they're humans, they're gonna be susceptible to some biases, But as long as they go through the process with with an open mind, consider all the facts, and then come to a reasoned conclusion, we should see them fair and we should see them as legitimate. I guess I I wonder if there has always been this perception of the Supreme Court as a political body. I feel a lot of the rhetoric at the moment seems to be, well, they should be politically neutral and they're not. And I, I don't think that's a unique conversation to this generation. I think that's probably something that pops mm-hmm. up repeatedly and certainly as a just an appreciator of history, not a deep uh, Supreme Court expert on this. It feels it feels like I could say the Supreme Court has never been politically neutral. And yet we have found ways to be comfortable with the decisions they're making. And so Caitlin, I think maybe I'll start with you on yeah. this. Is is the is the bedrock of that because it never has felt like politics was their primary, their primary driver. Well, so I think what you're kind of alluding to there, I think touches really nicely on what Alex was just talking about, and is this idea of legitimacy and essentially what about this institution allows me to accept decisions that it produces that I do not like. And a lot of it is this procedural fairness. I do think, Alex, you know a little bit more about this than I do, so correct me if you disagree. Um, I do think we've seen kind of the politicization politicization of the court, not necessarily in how the court is functioning, but how other political actors are framing the court. And that now nominees are a battle where we do see party line voting. We don't no longer see nominees getting 90 plus confirmation votes. And so I do think there's been a shift there, but not necessarily coming from the court, but rather how other actors have chosen to position themselves and to use the court in their own their own positioning. And just to, to add on to, to what Caitlin said a little bit, I do think there's a slight change going on in kind of the context of the court. And maybe this is just because the the digital age makes reporting a lot easier, but we see that 
more and more justices are willing to give speeches at kind of group-oriented events such as the Federal Society or other events that are not explicitly partisan speeches, but they definitely have uh, partisan or ideological leanings to them. And it's easy to kind of map those speeches onto the, the political spectrum. And then, you know, in the age of social media, those things kind of get spun out and are trending and people become more aware of them in ways they didn't used to. So I think people are now starting to see the justice as more political as they engage in more sort of those events. And then another kind of recent development on, on that end is the use of the shadow docket or the emergency docket for more substantive decisions. Because what you kind of see from the shadow docket is the Supreme Court is making substantive decisions really without the benefit of a full briefing or oral argument. And what that does, it, it harms perceptions of procedural fairness, right? If the court is releasing an opinion at midnight without hearing oral arguments and they justify their decision in just a paragraph, it doesn't seem like a fair process. It is no way that somebody can say, well, I lost, but I had a fair shake and they considered my arguments because th there are no arguments presented. So I think those are two developments that are sort of uh, changing how the court is presenting itself. And they, I think, are becoming more aware of this. And, uh, you know, recently we see justices critique the shadow docket in dissenting opinions. We see Justice Alito go to Notre Dame to talk about why the reporting on the shadow docket is inaccurate. And a lot of these things are maybe uh, working in tandem. Politicians much more likely to critique the court than they used to be. And then the court kind of taking these, these actions that maybe make it look a little less fair. Well, and so that brings a question to mind. So I'm going to follow up on what you just said is, I guess, how will we know when we've hit the danger point of the public perception of the court as unfair? And so, you know, what, what, should we, could we be watching out for in terms of, hey, we're getting too close to this tipping over and really the Supreme Court having almost no power. Um, you know, it, 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 by design, it was to be the weakest branch and obviously has no enforcement power in and of itself, but yet their, their decisions, their opinions have always carried a fair amount of weight. And so what, what do we need to be worried about in terms of this? A, a few things that are kind of key indicators is to look at how other politicians are talking about the court. How willing are they to attack the court for political gain? Because if they're attacking the court for political gain, it demonstrates an appetite for that in the mass public. For a lot of you know the, the country's history, politicians have been really reluctant to challenge the court or criticize the court because they didn't want to look like they were trying to make light of a legal or procedurally fair outcome. So they've kind of removed themselves from that. So I think as we see politicians more and more likely to attack the court, that starts sending up kind of red flags. We saw kind of little hints of things like uh, Joe Biden's court reform commission. That's not a, a strong kind of commission, but it is sending signals to the judiciary that, hey, we are keeping an eye on you and we are considering proposals for reform. Sure, nothing came with the commission, but that sends a strong signal to the justices that they're at least being watched and the other institutions are becoming dissatisfied. And if we see a context where the court continues to engage in behavior that's maybe unacceptable to the you know, majorities and in other institutions, well, that commission turns into something stronger and it can turn into a bill. Even if the bill's not passed, debating a bill sometimes is enough, like we see with FDR's court packing plan. Right? The plan never passed, but it did influence how the justices behaved. Yes, that's obviously something we're very familiar with here at the Jackson Center. <laughs> um, Caitlin, anything you'd like to add to that? 
Uh, no, I think Alex was kind of spot on that as we start seeing more and more politicians challenging the court openly, I think we're starting to hear you know, whispers of politicians talking about things like same-sex marriage again, thinking about states. The senator from Indiana recently talked about interracial marriage as kind of a state's rights issue. But so I think we're starting to see just kind of creeping into the ether a little bit, these conversations that aren't directly invoking the court or decisions that the court has passed, but are really starting to touch on these topics and potentially saying, you know, this is not settled. We're willing to kind of start chipping away at these things again. And so we've spent most of our conversation so far really focused on the Supreme Court for, for obvious reasons. But I'm, I'm curious as to, are there bellwethers at some of the lower judicial levels as well that we should be keeping an eye out for, you know, in terms of, well, to, to focus this back on the, on the diversity side of this, mm-hmm. you know, it is no secret that the uh, judicial nomination and approval process for a lot of the, the circuit courts, a lot of the, the lower federal courts is moving slowly, if not stalled in some areas. Mm-hmm. And so are there, are there things we should be paying attention to with the potential nominees at those levels or how that process is working that would also inform some of our thinking about, about this? So I think that those courts are maybe less important for how voters perceive the institution or how politicians are maybe talking about these because politicians sort of want to maximize the impact of their statements and they understand that maybe talking about circuit court nominations is not something that's going to captivate their constituencies in the same way the Supreme Court does. But there are certain strategies presidents engage in when these uh, nominations do start to take a longer time. There's some research that shows that presidents are somewhat strategic, and when they expect a lot of gridlock, they'll appoint diverse nominees to try to force the gridlock to break down, maybe put a little additional pressure on the senators to to hold confirmations for these uh, individuals. Especially in the context of something like divided government, this is going to be a a big problem moving forward. Right now, the Democrats have unified government, so they can push nominees through a little bit more quickly and you know, hold hearings and actually hold confirmation votes. But you can think of a, a world where the Republicans retake the Senate in the upcoming uh, Senate elections, and Joe Biden would you know, nominate individuals who probably would never get a confirmation vote at all. And that's gonna be the, the real problem. Okay, let's move a little bit to how does diversity contribute to the concept of justice? Mm-hmm. I think for me to put my personal thumb on this, one of the things I found most challenging about the rhetoric around Judge Jackson's nomination was how much emphasis was paid to the fact that she had been a defense attorney and therefore mm-hmm. must be soft on crime and and in favor of defending anybody, which mm-hmm. honestly is what our judicial process was designed for. So I, you know, I found it interesting that that was such a strong critique for her. But I, so that started me thinking of, well, how does diversity contribute to mm-hmm. justice? Obviously her path, some of her background is analogous to other justices, but her path there, not exactly the same since she did, she did have this, this time as, as defense counsel, but what, what should our goal be for judicial diversity? What is there some golden ratio that we're trying to get to? <laughs> is it that it should mirror the makeup of the country or, or is there some other uh, you know, I guess at what point is there enough, are there, are the diverse voices enough to actually make an impact? Mm-hmm. And Caitlin, I'm going to start with you on that. Sure. Well, so one thing I would say is I think for me, and I think the way we can think about this, a lot of my research t- uh, tackles the question of uh, collective representation, which essentially gets at, 
what does the institution as a whole look like? So moving away from thinking about individuals and thinking about, you know, do I want to be represented by a woman in Congress or is it important to me that Congress is 50% women? And a lot of my research shows that when, at least when we think about institutions and their legitimacy, it's really that collective component that people are thinking about. Um, and so I do think we want to be cognizant of that and thinking about different groups having proportional representation, um, over-representation potentially in some cases, and the signals that that's going to send to members of the public. That said, I do think kind of individuals have a really big role to play with the public. So we can think about Judge Jackson and her nomination and what that meant for African-American women in particular to finally see representation on the court. That's going to have a big impact as well. So we can think about kind of the inspirational kind of symbolic effects, role model effects, what this might mean for younger women. But we can also think about this in terms of the court's legitimacy. And when we're thinking in those terms, we are going to want to see kind of more representation. And the more we can have different groups and the more members of different groups we can have included, that's going to matter. And so some of my research, some other research um, looking at the legitimacy of institutions finds that at least uh, gender inclusion in particular can really be important. And when people feel that women have been excluded from the process, regardless of whether it's an issue that kind of affects women or not, the procedure and the process is viewed as less fair. And we know from that research that having tokens on these uh, committees and on these decision-making panels is not enough. So it's not enough to say, well, we have one woman and that's going to legitimize this outcome. It really does seem to be this kind of collective bit going on. When we're talking about the concept of justice as well, though, you know, I, and I'm sorry, I don't know the exact stats, but, you know, the number of judges currently at the federal level who came up on the prosecutorial side of, of legal practice is disproportionately significant to the number who have, have come up mm-hmm. on the defense side. How do, how do those paths impact how justice is rendered even? So, you know, if, if you came up on, if you came up on the defense side, are you are there things you are likely to look for that a prosecutorial side, just because of their experience on that, might not be part of their their consciousness? Um, and so I'm just curious too: is should we be seeking out, like deliberately seeking out, people who have taken different paths to get to where they are? Because overall, that will make the judicial system more fair. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I think that's exactly true, right? We know that people are shaped by their experiences and the, the path they choose for themselves, right? So a defense attorney has a much different mindset than a prosecutor has. If we want to do justice, right, and we want to have decisions that are kind of viewed as legitimate, rendered, viewed as fair, rendered, what we really need to do is have a diverse bunch of individuals making that decision, mm-hmm. making sure all points of view are heard, right? If it's just prosecutors making a decision, they're going to have a lot of blind spots as it relates to the, the kind of procedural fairness and the procedural rights that are guaranteed to criminal defendants, right? Because that's their worldview. They are focused on getting convictions and maybe those items are less important to them. But the defense counsel, they have the opposite view, right? They are very uh, stringent on procedures and want to make sure everyone get a fair trial. And when they come and meet and they have a deliberation and come to the best outcome, we can say, well, even if my particular preference lost, at least my values were heard, at least my deci- my mindset was heard, and this led to a decision that I can say, okay, I had representation in that. And as we think kind of about the, the question of when is enough diversity enough, or however we want to phrase this, I think 
really we have to kind of think a little bit about the nature of decision making on especially circuit courts and district courts, right? In the circuit courts, judges are assigned to three judge panels. And right now, most of the panels end up being all white men, mm -hmm. right? And if we're trying to think of that from a, an idea of procedural fairness, where we understand that diversity contributes to the points of view people are taking, those panels don't look particularly fair. So I'd say, well, when do we have enough uh, representation or enough diversity? It's when we no longer have those panels, right? Ideally, we'd have panels that are reflective of kind of the population at large. And on the district courts where these cases are only decided by one person, again, judges are randomly assigned to cases where you sort of have an equal propensity to be assigned any particular type of judge based on kind of the demographics of the public. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of gives it the most fair perception that you can have, I guess. Yeah. So should we strive for, and as a former attorney, uh, former practicing attorney, <laughs> I have no good concept of how this would actually work in practicality, but um, should we strive for our judges it sort of reminds me a little bit of coming up in the corporate world. You know, you want someone who had experience in this department and someone who had experience in this department. You know, so is that something we should strive for? Our judges come from a robust background. Um, and so they've had experience in multiple arenas that might seem in opposition to each other. Or is it sufficient, Caitlin, to your earlier point mm -hmm. of as long as the collective is balanced, you don't need any any particular individual or you, we don't need all individuals to have have that that sort of balanced background. That's a good question. And so I think this kind of touches on this tension of the outward facing role of the judiciary and how the public responds to the judiciary versus the internal workings. So we do have a lot of research on women in judicial politics and legislative politics that women behave differently on the bench as legislators, the way they do their jobs, the types of things that they emphasize. And so I think, you know, saying we have a collective pool of judges that are pretty good on gender, about 50-50, but we still start getting even some of these random, you know, all-male panels, those panels are still going to look, I think, illegitimate to people, regardless of the broader context, um, because I think people understand the decision-making body, they don't understand the pool from which it's drawn, necessarily, so that's still going to matter quite a bit, and it's still going to matter quite a bit for the uh, actual outcomes produced by these bodies as well, and so again, we can think about, you know, even if the broader pool is pretty diverse, if these panels themselves are not diverse, that's going to impact decision making and outcomes that are produced as well. That also sounds like, Alex, since you characterize it as sort of a trickle up uh, effect of the judges, that we need to be very conscious of diversity of path at the lower levels as well. So we are we are building that pipeline of people who have either a variety of experiences or experiences that are somewhat atypical from from what the what the the normal quote unquote, normal path is to those roles in order to make the pool for the upper levels as broad as possible. And I just don't know how workable, you know, that, that feels like something we could be conscious of. If we go back to the ideology conversation, though, I don't know how that works in actuality. Yeah, I think part of it is kind of having groups that are mobilized around these interests lobbying for these potential outcomes, right? Because, you know, Joe Biden, when he has a nomination, he's always going to try to choose a liberal candidate. But within that subset of liberal candidates, you can find people who have prosecutor defense, prosecutor experience, mm -hmm. people who have served as defense attorneys. You can find, you know, any, you can find women, you can find 
any kind of racial group within that pool. And then part of it is just signaling to the president that there's something to be gained by nominating these folks. And we see that kind of as criminal justice reform has become more salient in the fallout of Black Lives Matter movement and all this, those groups have started to put a pressure on uh, politicians to nominate or think about nominating more criminal defense attorneys. And Joe Biden has done that, right? Not only with Justice Jackson, but with the lower courts as well. We see him nominating much more individuals who have defense experience than any prior president. So it seems like because there's been a public movement that's kind of said, hey, this is an important characteristic for people to have. It seems like Joe Biden and his team are listening. So it's just maybe about getting movements for those other issues too. I'm sure as we think of other kind of paths, such as, you know, you mentioned education, most of the judges at the circuit court level and definitely at the Supreme Court level come from Ivy League institutions. We may think that uh, individuals who do not go to the Ivy Leagues maybe think about law differently. They have different world experiences that would lead them to make different decisions. And if those groups can kind of put pressure on Joe Biden to consider that as he's making his nominations, maybe he then starts to do it. So I think the best way to achieve these kind of diversity, not only in terms of us thinking about racial or gender diversity, but in terms of kind of occupational or life experience diversity, we just need to form those coalitions and then have them mm-hmm. kind of put pressure on the actors who are making the choices. Yeah. One thing I would kind of add to this and thinking about gender and racial diversity specifically is I think there's kind of two ways we can think about this. And one is we can broaden the pool. We can think about new pipelines to these roles. But the other thing we can think about is the existing pipeline we have and that it's a very leaky pipeline. And so some research that Alex and I have done, we surveyed law school students and we asked them about their interest in applying for a clerkship in the future, which is a huge indicator of what you're going to do later on in your career. And it's kind of a very early way to get into the pipeline. And what we're seeing is women are expressing lower levels of interest in those types of positions. And so I think there's also a world in which we need to think about, you know, what is it about this particular path? Why is it that women are expressing lower levels of the ambition? What signals is the system sending to them? How is it structured maybe in a way that sends them the message, you know, this isn't the path for you. And so how can we kind of plug some of these leaks in the pipeline might also be an avenue and something we need to think about in terms of broadening the pool and who's in the pool in the first place. Well, and my follow-up question to you was going to be, well, why, why, <laughs> why are women applying to, you know, is there something about the system? You know, what I wonder is you going back to that representation, mm-hmm thought is if you are not seeing people like you already in the system, I think research shows that that's a pretty big discourager, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. being that first person or even being like one of the few uh, for a lot of people is is a barrier. And so, you know, is there, as we, as we make the system more diverse in general, will that also help the pipeline problem? I think my suspicion is yes. Um, So we talk a little bit in the paper about kind of exactly what you said is that, is there something about this system that is sending signals that this is kind of a a quote masculine area that is not for women or, you know, otherwise it's kind of turning them away from this profession. And the more we kind of see representation, I think that helps to chip away at some of those perceptions, kind of breaks down those barriers. It also creates an avenue for people who are in the field to then encourage people like them. And so, you know, what that's meant when we've had majority white men serving in the judiciary, when they recruit people like them, that means other white men. But as we start to see kind of the judiciary diversify, all of a sudden recruiting people like you, who you have a natural proclivity towards, that means we're going to start getting more diverse folks coming into the pool as well. 
Well, and so, you know, part of what this also made me wonder is, has the judiciary always been relatively homogenous? You know, so obviously we have, we've been talking a lot about white men, but it feels like there have been, I'm not sure if it's a few paths to, to judges or to justice positions, but it, you know, as I mentioned sort of at the outset, when Robert H. Jackson was nominated to the court, he was the third attorney general in, the, in a row for that nomination process. So that was clearly a path. Again, using my very nascent historian brain here, I have a recollection of there was a series of university or law school presidents who moved from that role into the court. And so it feels as if there probably have always been certain paths that seem acceptable at any one time. And then maybe the country moves on or politics moves on and those are then no longer the accepted paths. But I'm just wondering, have the paths always been narrow or do they just feel narrow now because we're maybe more conscious about this greater world and this, this greater potential for diversity? Yeah, so I, I agree that the, the paths has always been relatively narrow. And if we wanted to kind of think of what the path is today, well, has the person been a Supreme Court law clerk that's right out of law school, right? So that gets you in the pipeline immediately. Mm -hmm. Then typically maybe you go on to get appointed to the Circuit Court of Appeals and especially the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, which is typically seen as the second highest court in the land. And then once you're there, you get a year or two experience. If there's a vacancy, you know, you get promoted. And that's typically the path that most nominees go through now. Only, only Elena Kagan has not gone through that path. She was a solicitor general before she was nominated to the Supreme Court, but she still has a strong pedigree. She was a Supreme Court law clerk herself, and she fits a lot of the, the key items that we normally would see. And then going through history, like you said, there's exactly kind of, I guess, scopes that we see at time that we want nominees that have characteristic X, Y, Z. And I think what we've kind of settled into in, in really the modern era, which I'll kind of categorize is in the 1950s, 1960s forward is that pathway of, you know, go to an elite law school, become a Supreme Court law clerk, hope to get a judicial appointment when you're relatively young, and then hope the president is of your party when it's time <laughs> for a nomination. And that's kind of the process that happens now. Is there, is there a hierarchy of diversity when we're talking about how it impacts justice? Is, I'm just going to leave it, I mean, diversity obviously is a very broad <laughs> term. So is there is there a hierarchy to diversity that makes things more just or at least seem more just? Caitlin, I think maybe I'll start with you on that one. Yeah, that's a great question. It's a tough one. Uh, so I think there are kind of two ways that I think about this question. So the first is, and again, kind of if we're thinking about the public and the way the public perceives things, there who you are as an individual is going to matter quite a bit and how you perceive the fairness of decision-making bodies. So if we think about a decision-making body that's all women, to women that might seem quite fair, men are probably going to rebel against that a little bit um, because they're not receiving representation there. Likewise, we could think about, you know, women are perhaps not going to be excited by a panel that has great racial diversity, but it's still all men. So I think we can think about it there, who you are is gonna matter for how you think through these things. But I also think thinking about kind of the issue areas. And so the it might shift depending on what the body is considering or is thinking about. So on issues that directly impact women, there we probably are thinking about gender diversity quite a bit and that it's especially important in those contexts because it's going to impact this group. You can think about things like civil rights legislation, um, civil rights cases where you know, race is going to be seen as more salient. And so I think some of it shifts and is kind of contextual depending on what decision 
is being reached and what the court is being asked to address. So we can think about that gender diverse panel that you know people might see that as very fair and it might be great that for an issue that impacts women, but if that decision-making body is asked to think about um, LGBT issues, if it's a panel of all straight judges, that's an issue, right? Um, because that there's not that group representation there. So that leads me one element of diversity that we've not really talked about mm -hmm. or touched on is socioeconomic. And, um, you know, mm -hmm. there's a, you know, I think there's a strong argument to be made that if you are going to law school, you are likely of a certain socioeconomic class, but that's mm -hmm. not, that's not the entirety of it. And because so many, again, gross characterization here, but a lot of defendants, um, certainly at lower court levels are from lower socioeconomic classes, especially if we're talking criminal defense, mm -hmm. is this an area that we still really need to explore? So in terms of diversity, how are we incorporating that, that background into our process? Is there any mm -hmm. sort of discussion about that currently or, or how, how we're looking at, again, if we're moving out of sort of the elite paths to things, what else are we considering? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important point. And my kind of read of the political science literature and the folks that Alex and I kind of interact with is that that's been kind of a blind spot for a lot of political science is thinking about class as uh, kind of an identity that needs to be represented. Big exception to that, there's a man named Nick Carnes at Duke who has studied class and legislative politics, but I think it's something that we need to have a much firmer grasp on, particularly in other branches where we haven't really considered it quite as much yet. Yeah, and just to kind of expand upon that, right, it's kind of like any other identity where if you wanted an outcome to be perceived as legitimate and carry the weight of all considerations, yeah. you definitely need people who are from low, low socioeconomic status. And if we're only looking to that conventional pipeline that we see today, well, that conventional pipeline kind of blocks out a lot of those individuals, right, who don't have the ability to go to Harvard Law School and then have the connections to get a Supreme mm -hmm. Court clerkship afterwards. So I think we should definitely think about kind of increasing the diversity and socioeconomic status, especially at the lower levels, right? As you said, if we kind of presume that most criminal defendants are of kind of these um, underclasses where they're disadvantaged socioeconomically, we have to understand why they're kind of engaging in the behaviors they are to kind of appropriately have a policy to deal with them. And if you have judges who are all very elite and can never fathom living in poverty, uh, it's going to lead to totally different outcomes than if you have judges who have experienced poverty and hardship in their life. I'm going to say something that may be a gross <laughs> overstatement or understatement. So please, please uh, address that as you will. While diversity is important at every level of the judicial system, it feels as if we need to be particularly cognizant of it at what I'm going to call the entry level. So whether that be at the state court level or the lower federal court level, because everything seems to build from there. How do you feel about that statement? <laughs> I think that's uh, spot on. And I think you're exactly right. We need to think about kind of all aspects of the pipeline and that you need to start at the beginning to understand that. And I would say, I think it's especially important to keep that in mind as we talk about diversity, as people kind of move up the ranks, that we need to make sure there's kind of a robust group of people to replace folks as they're promoted. So when a judge gets promoted from a circuit court to the Supreme Court, are we replacing them with people who share their backgrounds as well? Are we keeping that level diverse or have we kind of taken a couple of tokens, moved them up the chain, and then when they leave, all of a sudden the level that they've left is now, again, kind of white men. 
And I, and I agree with Caitlin, and, and Biden has, has done a pretty good job of this. So when he did nominate Judge Jackson to the Supreme Court, uh, his replacement for the DC Circuit Court was an African-American woman. And we see a similar trend with when he promotes district court judges sometimes to the Circuit Court, he is mindful to at least kind of have a replacement level of that matching kind of descriptive identity. So it seems like his team is really actually cognizant of this. And we see this in his nominations writ large and in terms of the diversity that he's kind of ushering into the, the judiciary right now. And is this where organizations like the American Bar Association or other legal, I mean, there's so many associations for lawyers, depending on what type of lawyer you're, you are, could be more helpful. So I, obviously the ABA publishes or announces their their judicial fitness anytime that a nomination is made, their their characterization based on a number of criteria. Is is this something that, you know, for, for the legal bar, this is something they should be getting more involved in, in terms of helping to seed this pipeline. I'm not quite sure that's the right phrase, but um, <laughs> helping to make sure that this pipeline is plugged and is as broad as possible. Yeah. So I think they, they can play a role. Unfortunately, the American Bar Association has a, a checkered record on this front because um, some scholars have analyzed their rankings of judicial candidates, and they actually find when you control for candidate experience, so kind of the law school, how much years of experience they have, they tended to rate African-American and women judges lower than white male judges. Mm -hmm. So it seems like they may be a part of kind of exasperating some of these difficulties by giving these candidates lower scores than maybe they would have otherwise got in a you know, counterfactual world where they were a white man. But mm -hmm. I think as you know, the American Bar Association becomes aware of these studies, which I'm very sure they are, <laughs> and they now have probably countless committees to correct the, the biases in how they're evaluating things, they can uh, play a role by just kind of, one, encouraging these groups to participate in the process more through scholarships at a law school level. As we kind of go through the ranking of law school processes, it may be considered how diverse is the class. Are they able to recruit diverse individuals? Diversity of faculty may be something to, to consider as well. And the bar associations have at least a hand to play in that and how they legitimize certain law schools. And so this also sounds perhaps an area where the defense bar could get more involved as well, or some other, I don't, I don't know that you'd want uh, more corporate lawyers in there, but you know, like, so there's <laughs> to be, like, there, there are, there are other bars as well that perhaps mm -hmm. could, could implement similar or analogous consultations. I don't really want to call them paths, mm -hmm. but you know, a, a ways to help bring to light mem mm -hmm. their members who might also be not traditionally thought of, but would be great in these roles. Yeah, and I think that that's exactly a great idea. Uh, we know less about this in the context of the judiciary, but more so in the context of kind of electoral politics. One women, one reason we don't see a lot of women candidates that are, they're not likely to be as recruited as male candidates. So they just kind of go, oh, I, I guess I'm not qualified to run because no one's asking me to run. Once you kind of ask them to run, they're just as likely to run. So it could be that we see low levels of diversity in the judiciary in some context, because these people don't necessarily know that it's a pathway for them. No one's recruiting them into those pipelines, mm -hmm. and therefore they're not ultimately selected, right? But if we had more of a, an institutional kind of system that recruits these individuals and reminds them they're just as qualified as anyone else, maybe they'd be able to come into these pipelines and ultimately make it to the end. So it's just yeah. about pipeline development, I think is a big part of the story. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would loop back a little bit to something Alex touched on, which is this idea that I think some of these organizations also, though, need to be very cognizant of some of the trends we see, which is that women and minority candidates are often held to different standards and higher standards. And so oftentimes institutions or individuals will see two candidates and they'll say, well, these candidates are the same a man and a woman, I think they're equally qualified. But if we look at the objective criteria, the woman is actually way more qualified and her qualifications are getting downweighted. And so I think that when we think about these recruitment mechanisms and getting people into the pipeline, that these groups need to be very cognizant of that and thinking about, you know, are we holding men and women to the same standard or are we effectively saying women have to be better for us to put in the effort to recruit them? And what does that mean then for diversity? All right, now we're going to move to my favorite part of the conversation, which is the (laughs) lightning round. And so we really like to leave our audience with things to think about, all sorts of of explorations that they can do Mm -hmm. on their own. So I always start with, and uh, Alex, I'm going to start with you. What do you wish people were paying more attention to? Yeah, so I think that probably the, the biggest thing I wish people were paying more attention to is the judiciary outside of the context of very high profile sandwich events. So it seems like there's a you know a Supreme Court nomination, and we start to pay attention to the judiciary in that context. The nomination ends, the judiciary moves on, and it's still making a lot of important decisions that affect our day-to-day lives, how we interact with police officers, our rights to freedom of speech, freedom of religion, that do get media attention, but they don't really captivate a larger debate. And I mean, part of these are my own biases, right? Being a <laughs> professor of judicial politics, of course, I want people to pay more attention to judicial politics because it keeps me in business, but I think kind of the day-to-day workings of the judiciary are underappreciated to an extent. Caitlin? I would say Republican women. So I think oftentimes in discussions about gender diversity and gender and what it means for deliberative processes, we often think about the Democratic Party. And that's a fair that's fair to some extent because the Democratic Party actually is fairly good on including women in political posts. But I think there's a lot happening with Republican women as well and that we should be talking about them more. Okay. I agree with Caitlin. That, that is also a, a thing that I find really interesting. I would agree if people seem astonished when a person of color or a woman or um, uh, someone on the LGBT, someone who's LGBTQ mm-hmm. is a Republican. That seems yeah. incongruous to a lot of people. Um, so it's certainly something to also for us to sort of check our own biases as to why does that feel like those two things shouldn't work together. What, Kayla, I'm gonna start with you on this one. Sure. What do you think is one of our greatest threats to democracy? I would say it's kind of the current climate of misinformation and conspiratorial thinking. You know, I think when you have large segments of the population saying they don't believe the results of an election, that is not a great sign for democracy. Okay, Alex? And so mine's kind of similar to Caitlin's. I would say, you know, the the extent to which we're observing polarization today is probably the biggest threat to democracy and how this ties into a concept known as negative partisanship, where really you just, you know, you just hate the other political party for no other reason than they have a different kind of political identity to you. So we're starting to see politics more and more in terms of kind of like how we'd root for sports teams, you know. Uh, I like the Yankees, so I have to hate the Boston Red Sox. And it's nothing particularly about the Boston Red Sox, just that's who they are. So I have to hate them. And no matter what they do, I'm going to oppose it. And we increasingly see that play out in politics where nothing the other party does can be seen as good. And you just always have to delegitimize it. And you don't trust them at all to do anything. So this leads to a lot of conspiratorial thinking like Caitlin identifies Mm -hmm. and mistrust in elections. And I think kind of just that this has huge 
ramifications for downstream political participation because elites start to then maybe tinker with the process of democracy, limiting the right to vote in some context. And you know that that's kind of is where I see the dangers coming and um, it does not look too rosy. <laughs> so let me flip that question then and I'll start with you on this. What do you see as some of the best opportunities for yeah, democracy or democratic institutions? Yeah, I, I think that the response to a lot of the negative things we see is sort of maybe the best benefit we can see too is you see as people are trying to limit or restrict the right to vote, there are huge protests, there are huge events and uprisings to challenge those and try to get those elected officials out of office to try to make it easier to vote and try to inspire confidence in uh, the democratic process. And then I think, you know, related to the conversation we are kind of having today on diversity, I think it's very refreshing to see every year the Congress is more and more diverse and this kind of tells everyone that this institution is available to me. So I teach at the University of Houston, we're a Hispanic serving institution. We have a lot of African-American students and it's very refreshing for me to have them be able to see these institutions reflect their beliefs. And as Judge Jackson was nominated, my students were thrilled and it was really kind of impressive for me and really touching for me to see them be so touched by the nomination. Yeah. Well, so Alex stole my answer. I was going to say, yeah, keeping with the theme, I think seeing institutions increasingly diversifying in a whole multitude of ways, both for what it means for the public and kind of their relationship with democracy and the extent to which they feel represented, but also just for the ramifications that has for actual decision-making and the outcomes produced, you know, increasing diversity does, I think, lead to fairer outcomes for a wider variety of groups. Interests are being heard that have previously been excluded. And so I think that this is a really encouraging trend that we're seeing. And that, as Alex said, every midterm we hear, you know, it's a record number of women serving in Congress. And I think that's an encouraging thing um, to see. And then to see that get such play and to be kind of celebrated as it's occurring, I think, is one of our great opportunities. Okay. And so then if our audience wants to go out and read, find thinkers, podcasts to listen to, who else is doing good work? What are the what are the the authors, the podcasters, the thinkers, the webcasters, whatever it is that you think our audience should take a look at? And Caitlin, I'm going to start with you on that. Sure. Um, so there's a great podcast from the, I'm going to butcher their name, the Niskin Center. Wisconsin Center, um, where they do a podcast and they often will invite political scientists, other social science researchers. So similar format to this, but also discussing kind of research in a very real world context. So I would say that's a great podcast to listen to for folks who are interested in maybe reading some of the research on diversity and the judiciary specifically. I would plug um, a colleague of mine, her name's Jessica Shaner. She's doing some cool work on women in the judiciary, lawyers in particular, and then a professor at the University of Georgia, Christina Boyd, has done a lot of great work looking at, you know, how does decision making shift when women are included in the judiciary and how do women behave as judges? And I, I find her work to be quite accessible. So for folks who are interested in reading it, I think I think it's very digestible for non-academics. Alex? Yeah, so I, you know, want to say that Caitlin's recommendations are great and I'd second them. Uh, and a few others that I have here, I'm going to, you know, recommend some scholars to, right, just because that's who I read the most. I think Nancy Arrington, she's a professor at Cal Poly. She's great, and she works a lot on judicial diversity and kind of its implications. And she really looks at how presidents replace diversity with diversity. So I think she's doing some really great, interesting research. 
I also have Shane Gelson down. He's a professor at uh, University of Texas A&M Corpus Christi. He does a lot of research on how gender impacts oral arguments through interruption patterns or the tones that the justices take with particular advocates. And I think that's some really interesting research. I had Christy Boyd down too, but Caitlin. <laughs> Allison Harris is a professor at Yale who studies diversity in the judiciary and also does a lot on how the prosecutor defense kind of attorney background influences judicial decision-making. And they're finding that people with defense, defense experience kind of take a more or less punitive approach to criminal justice than others, right? So I think that's really important research that's salient right now. And then last, I have Michael Zillis, who is a professor at the University of Kentucky, and he kind of analyzes how people's like or dislike towards groups that benefit from Supreme Court decisions. So we may think of people who dislike uh, gay and lesbian individuals. How do they respond to a decision from the Supreme Court legalizing same-sex marriage? And what's that say about the court's legitimacy? So he's really kind of tying in a lot of that, the ideas we've been talking about today into his research. And then for a podcast, I have one that I'd like to recommend that does a really good job on thinking about the judiciary, and that's Delilah Lithwick, and she has a podcast called Amicus, yeah, and she works at Slate. She's a great reporter. I think she does a great job reporting on the court. Sometimes she'll have political scientists on too, which is a real benefit. And then lastly, I'd recommend Adam Liptake, who works at the New York Times. I think he's the best Supreme Court reporter there is, and he also does a great job incorporating academic research into his discussions of the court. So it's not just, here's what the court did today, but here's kind of the processes that happened that arrived at a particular decision. And what does political science have to say about this? What do law professors have to say about this in a meaningful way? So that's what I want to Dahlia and Adam are two of my personal favorites as well. So uh, always nice to, uh, to to hear their names. So Caitlin and Alex, I want to thank you so very much for joining me for tea today. For our audience as well, please join us for our next tea time, which will be on Thursday, May 26th at 3 p.m. Eastern. I look forward to seeing you all then. And Alex and, and Caitlin, thank you so very much. Thanks for having us. Time. I appreciate the invite. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our podcast is edited by Connor Keenan. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this episode was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a series of Facebook Live events produced by the Jackson Center, whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends.